following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. The word of the Lord from Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praises of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of this will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word, this, this reliable foundation that we have to build our life upon, the fact that it's not just a, a how-to manual for life, but you want to disclose your hidden uh, will, your, the mystery of your will, the plan, the, the, the grant, like what you're up to. You've, you've disclosed it to us this morning, and so would you give us eyes to see what you're up to? Would you give us a heart that gravitates toward you, that wants to know you and worship you to a greater extent, God? And would you help me this morning communicate this glorious truth that we have access to in Christ? Would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, God? Would you help my heart be engaged with the reality of these truths so that your people would come and drink deeply to hear from you? Not, not, not my opinions, not my thoughts, not you know, my, it's not about me, God, that, that we would hear from you this morning. Use me as a conduit. Open up our ears, soften our hearts to receive all that you have. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, it's good to be back. Um, I've been out of the pulpit for the last three weeks. We just welcomed our fourth son into the world a few weeks back. So excited. Um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity that I had just to kind of step back. I told my MC, uh, was it Wednesday night? I was like, I, that time away kind of made me forget what it's like to be a pastor, which was nice. Like, I love being a pastor, but it was just kind of nice to step back and breathe and be with my family and recharge. And I personally, I think it's a win-win because I came back, I'm ready to go, guys. I'm like, I'm the Energizer buddy right now. Um, and so I think it's a win-win for us. My family was blessed. Um, it was nice to just show up on Sunday morning and worship with you. Just be part, be in the pews and engage in that way. Uh, I want to commend Ash and Corey Johnson, who came up from um, St. Louis area, who preached for me in my absence. Ash did a great job preaching back to back. So continue to, to just encourage him because uh, he did such a good job. And, and what they were doing here, we've been going our way through the book of Ephesians. It's, it's one of the best books, in my opinion, pound for pound, uh, that we have in the Bible. Um, and Ash and Corey did a tremendous job of, of inching us through the first major section of the book of Ephesians. And, and for that, I'm very grateful uh, for their service and the labor that they've put into that. And um, at the same time, you know, while, while, we were, while we got a baby into our family, I felt like I was giving a baby away here when I was giving up some of those passages. Because these verses here that we have in, in verses 3 through 14, some of the best, I would say top five passages of Scripture, P, 
period, guys. This is incredible. This is a high proof theological poetry. Okay, I, I've been getting into bourbon lately, like collecting it and stuff like that and drinking it, but collecting it. Uh, in fact, today, today's my birthday and I woke up this morning. Yeah, my wife gave me some of like some, some bourbon that I was, it's hard to find. And so I was just like pumped up about it. And now I get to come worship with you. But anyway, this is, the thing that I've been learning about bourbon is there, there's like different levels of proof. So they, they get it out of, the, out of the, the cask, they get it out of the barrel, and it's, it's really potent. And what they end up doing is cutting it with water to make it more palatable. But there's some bourbon that just comes straight out. Like it's a high proof. So this is, this is one of those high proof passages. It, it's dense. It's, it's thoughtfully crafted. It, it's just, it's a, it's a, an expression of worship. It's doxology coming out of the heart of the apostle Paul. And I was supposed to move on from this. Like I was supposed to move on to the next few verses here, verses 15 and 16 and 17. I was supposed to do that, but we're not going to. I'm gonna stay parked here for one more week. One, because I can. It's my birthday. I can do what I want. Two, uh, there's still meat on my bone. My grandpa, uh, Bill, he was a bone picker. Like, so I don't know, maybe you got somebody like this in your, your family. Not like he picked an argument, but literally taking meat from the bone and, and he would chew it down till there's nothing left, right? And he'd be like sitting at the table. It's like, hey, there's still meat. Can, can I have your chicken bone? You know, and he, he eats it down to nothing. There's still meat on the bone and there's still gonna be meat on the bone after we leave here this morning. And that just pumps me up because that means like in five years, six years, whenever we come back to it, we're gonna go at it again. So there's still meat on the bone. Two, three, this is the third reason. I don't think this passage has gotten into our bones yet. I don't think as a church collectively that we have adopted this into the deepest parts of our being yet. Now to be fair, it takes a lifetime plus a day to, to fully get, to fully grasp the unfathomable, which is what we have right here. This stuff is unfathomable, like the, the depths, the riches of this verse. We could we literally spend like the next decade just looking at these 11 verses. So much here. But God graciously settles us into this reality that is being communicated to us little by little. So more and more, the more that we, we sit here, the more that we meditate on these words, the more it becomes a part of us. This reality that Paul is communicating becomes our reality. Now, what is this reality? What is Paul talking about? He's talking about really two things. Your true identity of who you are in Christ. In other words, Paul is communicating in these verses what is most true about you when you are a Christian, when you have put your faith in Jesus. And the other thing that he's communicating is the true reality which will be one day at the fullness of time when Jesus comes back and unites heaven and earth together. Now, when we're talking about this true identity, this whole series is really kind of pressing us into who we really are in the gospel. And this gospel identity isn't just an, a little tidbit for you to throw up in your Instagram bio, like a little fun fact. It's not that. This is something that is profound, that when, it, when it's yours, it completely reorients your entire life. In fact, the only way, or the, the primary way the scriptures talks about this, and we profess it this morning, is that you literally become a new creation. This is not an auxiliary component to your life. This is not a little add-on bonus. This is a completely new way of being in the world that you are born again spiritually. You become new men, new women in the gospel. Now, the way that the, the book of Ephesians is broken down is chapters three through six, or actually be four through six, talk about how new people live. Like, what are the dynamics? What are the rhythms? What are the things that we actually do? But before Paul talks about what Christians should be doing, he talks about who Christians truly are, and the first three chapters of this is all about your identity in Christ. And, and what we've seen these last three weeks in sort of a, a big picture scenario here so far, we've been adopted. We've become children of God through the gospel. The Father has put out this plan before the beginning of time to bring us into his family, that we would call him Father, that we'd have brothers and sisters in the faith. Together, Corey, 
preached on that, did a great job. Ash went on the next week to talk about how we've been redeemed. There's the forgiveness of sins, that the thing that wants to find us to the core, just being sinners, being broken, now is reworked. So we are redeemed. We have this newness. We've been cleansed by the Son. And then Ash talked about last week, the Holy Spirit sealing us. That, that God gives all of these gifts, these spiritual blessings that are ours. The Spirit seals us and keeps us so that when Jesus comes back, we're gonna be there with him. And so that's what he's been working through us, adopted by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Holy Spirit. You belong, and all of these things are communicating your identity in Christ. That is what's most true about you in the gospel. And today, I wanna take another central piece of our identity in Christ and focus on that. And the, the, the identity piece here is I wanna talk about is we are worshipers. That's our identity. We become worshipers of the one true God who accomplishes salvation on our behalf. It's not just something we do. Worship isn't just something that we do here on Sunday mornings for an hour. It's not just something that, that we do. It's, it's such a crucial part of our life that it actually is central to who we are. That, that's why it's a piece of our identity. We are worshipers. And that's because God created us to be worshipers. In fact, we are worshipers who are worshiping at all times. It's like a hose that's stuck on full blast. It can't be shut off. It's, it's constantly flowing. Worship is flowing out of our hearts at every moment of the day, which means that worship isn't just isolated to an hour, hour and a half here on Sunday mornings. Worship is happening all the time, whether you're at work, you're at home on the fam with the family, uh, you're out on the bike path, you're at the dinner table, you're enjoying a good meal, like you're worshiping at all times. And this isn't just true of Christians, right? Christians don't have the market on worship. Everybody, everybody is a worshiper, which means that right now, we're in here and we're here to worship Jesus, but the rest of the city Regardless of where they are, they too are worshiping something. See, it's not a matter of if you worship, it's a matter of what you worship. David Foster Wallace makes an observation. He's a, he's a, a late uh, novelist, writer, very thoughtful gentleman. He says this, he's, he's not a Christian, secular dude. He says this, because here's something else that is true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. This is a non this is a secular dude. He realizes, he acknowledges the fact that we are worshipers. Now, we can't choose if we turn the faucet on, right? The faucet's already on, but we get to choose what we point the faucet at or what we point the hose at. Now, for some of us, it might be a thing of like, of, of really asking ourselves, what is it that I worship? What is the hose directed at? And, and I think that you can really uh, most often answer this question by thinking about, well, where do I invest my time? Like when I have free time, what do I do with it? Where am I putting my money? That, that's typically, in fact, I think the money is usually a biggest indicator of what you worship. What excites you? Like what, what do you daydream about? What do you find yourself thinking about when your mind needs to be on something? Those are the things that sort of indicate what our heart gravitates towards, what we're actually worshiping. And, and at the bottom of this, we direct our worship at what we find beautiful and compelling, what, what makes us feel alive, right? That's the stuff that we invest in. That's what, what we begin to worship. Now, as Christians, we obviously say we're here to worship Jesus. Jesus makes us feel alive. In fact, we'll get, on, get in later into this passage in Ephesians. We've been made alive in Christ. And so we worship Jesus. That's why we're here. But we worship what we find beautiful and compelling on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. It's not as simple as just saying, like, I'm gonna worship Jesus, or like, I worship Jesus, and I do it all the time. Now, that, that, that's what we want to do. That's what we aspire to do. My whole life would be worship unto the Lord. 
But we are inconsistent worshipers because on this moment-by-moment basis, whatever we find beautiful, whatever we find most compelling, that's what we're gonna point our worship towards. Could be your work, right? That career, the the idea of success. That's what I'm I'm worshiping. And and you know this because you put your time, your free time, your social life on the altar in order to make this stuff happen. Could be your family, Right, your spouse, you just wanna please them, do everything. You'll bend over backwards for your kids. You just feel, you feel terrible if you have to let them down in some regard. So you worship sex, your body. Right, you, you just spend all kinds of hours and hours and hours at the gym obsessing about the number on the scale, what you look like in front of a, a mirror. Your stuff, I just wanna, you know, the whole... The, the, the saying, the, the one with the most stuff when they die wins. I don't know. Is that a saying? I just made it up if it is. We'll come back to that. I'll, I'll post it on the internet, and then it'll take off. We are worshiping all kinds of things, it's trying to rob that worship from Jesus. And, and, and honestly, most of this stuff gets deployed so I can worship myself so I can exalt myself and make myself feel better. Now, the word the Bible uses for this is idolatry. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter one, where humans in our fallen condition choose to worship creation rather than creator. So we have this glory displacement, where instead of seeing God as the most glorious thing in the cosmos, we look at the people next to us or this idea of success or whatever, or or any sort of created thing, and we say, well, that, that thing, I should put my worship towards that. Well, that's what the Bible calls idolatry. And the problem about this, the problem with idolatry is that whatever those things that we point our worship toward, they were not meant to handle the weight of our worship. They can't bear up underneath of it. And one of two things happens. Either you will crush them. So if, it's, if you're worshiping your spouse and you have these high expectations for them, and they feel that, they feel the weight upon them, eventually your worship, your expectations will crush them because they were not meant to carry that worship. Now you can still love them and honor them and thank God for them, but there's a difference between that and worshiping them. So one, you'll crush them. Two, they'll crush you. You'll get let down by them. You put, listen, you put your your hope and your worship in your career and you find yourself in a place where layoffs are happening, and you're, you're 45, 50 years old, and you've got to find a new job, like that, that will let you down. That job is not safe. It's not secure. It can't bear up under the weight of your worship. See, this is another thing that David Foster Wallace acknowledges in the same excerpt here. He says this, he's in an outstanding reason for something, some sort of God or spiritual type of thing. So he's just saying, hey, like there's, there's merit to worshiping Jesus or Allah or Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles. He's saying this, there's value into finding something that's, that can handle worship. Now, Christians, we'd say, okay, only one thing can handle our worship. But here's what he observes. The value here is that pretty much everything else that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. That's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need an ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and on and on. See, if you worship the wrong thing, it will eat you alive. Psalm 25, Romans 10, and other passages like this tell us that those who trust in the Lord will not be put to shame. 
Now, trust, I think, might be one of the highest expressions of worship. Because trust, like, it, it's one thing to say, hey, I appreciate you from a distance. Like, good job. Yeah, God, you're, yeah, you really are beautiful. But for it's another thing to actually say, I trust you. I see your beauty. I see your goodness. I see your power. And I, I entrust myself to you. I surrender to you. I'm hoping in you. I've put all my chips on the table. I've got no backup plans. I've got no contingencies. This is all I've got. See, this is why trust is the most grandiose expression of worship. Now, in order for us to get to this place where we worship God, like we, all the worship that's flowing out of our hearts truly and rightly gets directed to God, is that we have to see why God alone is worthy of all, all worship and all praise. Now, the reality is that God, just by himself, just by existing, is worthy. He didn't have to do anything. By, by, by the nature of his character, his goodness, his beauty, his truth, right? God is worthy of worship, but God demonstrates these characteristics to us through his works. In fact, they, his works overflow out of who he is, which sort, sort of sets a template for us that our, our action follows our being, that this is the pattern of the gospel. Because God is good, he does good things. Because we are, are sons and daughters, we live as sons and daughters. Right, the being informs the doing. And we see this in places like Psalm 145. Let me just read to this, where, where we see God's character and his action, his works linked together. The psalmist says, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. So here we see the greatness and the mighty awesome deeds they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, again, the character, and sing aloud of your righteousness, more character, all wrapped up in God's works. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. The character of God informs the works of God. And when we see the works of God, when, when that's made clear to us, we begin to worship God rightly. And Ephesians chapter one, the apostle Paul is showing us the magnitude of God's work for us in salvation. Now, most Christians have a very wimpy understanding of what salvation means, right? Like we use, like I'm saved, and we turn it into this like colloquialism, this little thing that is so small, it's so truncated of what it actually means to have, uh, to attain salvation from God. We think of it in terms of this, that, that I here am existing on this earth for a certain amount of time. At some point, my time will expire, and then God will determine what's gonna happen to me. I'm either gonna fly up to heaven or I'm gonna be thrown into the bad place, right? And it's gonna be either good or it's gonna be bad. And that's kind of it. Like, and we think of salvation, I've just been saved from going to the bad place. Now, there's piece of this that is true. Like, there, there's, that's part of this. But it's such a narrow piece of what salvation actually means. See, if, if our, our vision of salvation, of being saved, is merely just escaping this world, sort of being plucked out of this earth and sent into the clouds where we'll float around and play harps all the rest of our life. And just like, honestly, to me, that sounds boring. I don't, that, that's like, there's just so much good stuff to do here, to like run and use your body to build something, to, to make art. Like there's so many cool things to eat and drink. Like there's so many great things. And if I'm just getting extracted out for the spiritual realm, I, I'm not into that personally. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't compel me. And I hope, I hope that doesn't compel you either because I think it's kind of a snooze fest. But if this is our vision, if this, this is what we think salvation is, then no wonder why our worship is so lackluster. No wonder why it, you know, we, we profess this, like it's so cold, it's kind of flat. See, in, in order for our worship to be this explosive response to God, 
We have to understand the nuance, the, the depth, the breadth, the width, the grandiose, and yet even the minuscule things that God has accomplished for us. Think of it this way, that, that salvation is like the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. You step into that, I've never stepped into this, but you look at pictures of this. Maybe you've been there, that'd be sweet. You step into it and it's just, it's huge. It's enormous. It's, it's a giant masterpiece. It's so big that like literally it, the only thing that contain it is, is a huge ceiling. It's a massive masterpiece. Yet when you move in, and, and if you get these photos that are close up, you can see the beauty and the intricacies of, of the small details and the line work, right? The big picture is grandiose and you move in the small stuff is just as impressive. See, salvation is God's masterpiece. It demonstrates and showcases God's artistry and his character. And for us to get a full view of it, to appreciate it rightly, we have to zoom in and to zoom out. We have to get the macro view of it, see the big picture of it, and the micro view of it. And so here's what I'm gonna do. For the little bit of time that I have left, we're gonna unpack this. And, and I'm just gonna warn you right now, it's been a few weeks since I've preached and this might get long, but I promise you it's gonna be worth it. So let's start with the, this macro view. The, the grandiosity of the Sistine Chapel, you step in it and it, it wows you. But salvation is so much bigger. In fact, God shows us, he, it's like, you know how like the new iPhones, they like have these new wide lenses so you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to keep backing up and backing up and back. Like this is, this passage right here, verses three through 14, gives us a new kind of lens that just lets us zoom way back and get the full picture. And this isn't a, a, a wimp, like, guys, I can't, I can't even communicate how impressive this is. What we're told here that this big picture, it's the mystery of God's will. That's the language Paul uses here. The mystery of God's will. He's telling us what God's up to. And right here in verse 10, he tells us, that God's plan for the fullness of time, so when Christ comes back, he is to unite all things in Christ Jesus, all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All things are gonna be brought back together in Christ. Now, to, to understand this, to make sense of this, we have to understand that there are two realms there are two realms that exist. There's the heavenly realm. This is God's space. It's defined by his presence, his holiness, his glory is on display there. And where God is, there is life. That's what the heavenly realm is. And then we have the earthly realm, the, the physical world that we inhabit, which as we know it, it's marked by sin and brokenness and death and decay. And so we have these two realms, and right now where we stand, they're separated. They're divided. Um, but the Bible actually begins with these two realms overlapping. Like Think of like a Venn diagram that's completely been swallowed up by itself. That the heavenly realm and the earthly realm overlap, and the place that this is called is called the Garden of Eden where God's presence is, where his holiness, his glory, his, his might, his power, his artistry is on display. Where he is, there is life. And at the same time, it's a very much a physical world. Adam and Eve were cultivating the ground. They were gardeners for a living. I know that the time of year where you're all putting in plants in your gardens and stuff, fun times, that's what they got to do for a living. And everything there was flourishing and great and beautiful but then we get to Genesis chapter three and we see the fall where what C.S. Lewis calls the great divorce of heaven and hell. The, the great divorce, of, not, excuse me, of the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. There's this divorce where it's ripped apart because sin has entered this world and Adam and Eve have participated in sin that they get pushed out of God's sphere of the heavenlies and now they have to inhabit their own space, this great divorce. It wasn't meant to be that way. But if it if it kept that way, humanity would have had to cease to exist because a holy God cannot tolerate. Anything that's unholy in, a, in, a, in, the, in the presence of a holy God will get consumed. And so we see this great divorce happen between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. Yet, in the Old Testament, we see this piece of the narrative where there is overlap 
between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, and the place where that is is the temple. This, this is a key thing here. And this is a theme that we'll pick up. In fact, as we get in chapter three, this is a really important theme in the book of Ephesians, is the, the temple. Now, the temple is where God dwelt among his people. And, and the center of the temple was this place called the Holy of Holies. It's, it's like where, where the hot spot of God's presence was right there. And, and this temple was filled with all kinds of imagery and, and artistry and details that was reminiscent of the garden. It, it was pointing people back to this place where heaven and hell, or excuse me, no, heaven and earth coexisted together, that there was this complete overlap. And this temple was just a little foreshadowing uh, of that, a little foretaste of that. But even with this temple here in the midst of God's people, there's still a lot of red tape around it. It, it. Only one high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies to be in the presence of God. And, and, and the book of, uh, of Leviticus talks a lot about what it takes for that person to step in there. A lot of red tape, a lot of, a lot of you know, caution. There's limited access for God's people, again, because of the problem of, of sinful man and a holy God. Now, part of the, the, the contingencies that God offered, the concessions that God offered for, for his people to be able to commune and, and fellowship and be with God was that through animal sacrifices, the sin and the guilt of people would somehow be transferred from us onto them. And where that happened, that created a clean space, made clean people for the moment. And God and people, that little bit, of, that sliver of heaven and earth being together could exist for that moment. Now, this is fine. It goes on for a long time. And, and honestly, the temple's a really bloody place. If you, if you read through the beginning uh, of the, the Torah, the law here, a lot of sacrifices day in and day out just so people could be, be with God because it was the, the life of the animal in place of mine so I could be with God. Now, that's fine. It works, but God has a bigger plan than this. He doesn't just want to have a sliver of overlap between heaven and earth. God wants all of heaven and earth to be rejoined together. That it's not just this isolated pocket of, of heaven and earth existing in, in, in together in tandem in the temple, but that all of earth and all of heaven would mesh together, would be a widespread coexistence of heaven and earth. And Jesus, when he comes, his ministry in, in, um, in John's gospel, he talks about this a lot, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, um, the kingdom, he talked about life, Jesus bringing life with him. Jesus is going about and he's demonstrating what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's bringing with him these little pockets of the kingdom of heaven. And so no longer is it just here in the temple where God exists. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven to people. It's not that you just go to the temple. Jesus comes to the people. And he's showing people, he's giving sort of a, a foretaste of what the kingdom of heaven is, is like by healing people, by forgiving sin, restoring sight to the blind, by satisfying uh, people's hunger and thirst. It's just this beautiful thing. We see Jesus overlapping heaven and earth, but then ultimately we see Jesus doing this at the cross. See, it's no longer the blood of animals that makes us clean so we can inhabit the same space as God. It's the blood of Jesus that's given. Verse seven talks about this. We have redemption through his blood. It cleanses us. It allows us to enter into the clean space to exist with God. And one day, everything, not everything, in the spiritual and physical world that pleads the blood of Jesus will be brought into this, this new heavens and new earth. See, this is the, the cosmological view of what God is doing. This is a big view of creation, which means, like, in the new heavens and new earth, you won't ever get a splinter when you're working on, on a, a woodworking project, right? In the new heavens, new earth, you will not know what it's like to grieve loss because everything that we experience as loss here on this side of eternity will be paid back with interest on the other side of eternity, See, it's this grandiose thing where God is renewing and recreating all things to be even better than when they started. It's this huge thing, and this is gonna happen at the fullness of time. When Jesus comes back, he'll renew and repair everything to its intended glory, even us. And it's united so thoroughly by the blood of Jesus 
It'll be like the great divorce of heaven and earth never happened. It's, that's, why, that's why scripture talks about marriage as pointing into the mystery of God's work and salvation, the bride of Christ and the church, the, the, the bridegroom and the bride together, right? The heaven and earth will be meshed together. Two become one. The best of earth remains. It gets grafted into heaven, this perfect world. This is the micro, or excuse me, the macro view of what God is doing in salvation. Everything will be affected. Now, God won't force himself on you. God's not going to just be a bully. It's available to all people, but only to those people who claim and, and like, I want this. I want this for my life. God offers it to us. And Jesus is going to make all things right through his own Blood. Now, that's the macro, but there's also this, this micro element of, of salvation that's deeply personal to us, like right now. So, so we can say this macro thing, it's in process, it's underway. That's why we have the spirit. It's a guarantee that Jesus began this work and he's gonna finish the work. It's gonna happen, but, but there's also this future reality of what this is gonna happen, like what it's gonna be like in the future. But right now, there's a present personal reality. There's various facets of what salvation means, what it means for me to be saved, what it means for me to experience the gospel. And I'm not gonna spend a ton of time talking about this because Ash and um, Corey did such a great job with this, but, but I gotta highlight this because some of this stuff gets into the nitty-gritty pieces of life. So, for example, verse 3 says, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Now, it's, it's interesting because in Genesis 3, we all find ourselves under the curse. We, like men, the work becomes burdensome and, and, and toil and toil and toil. And women, you know, I'm pretty sure childbirth tickled before the fall. And now it's miserable. I, I can speak from watching it a few weeks ago. It's pretty brutal, right? So there's a sense of the curse rests upon us. But now, and we can't help but feel that sense of the curse, to feel the fracture of how things are, even in, in the inconsistencies of, of the relationships that I have with other people. In fact, Adam and Eve start blaming each other when the fall happens. Right? There's that curse of relationship, a curse with the relationship to God. But here, he says, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Your, your identity is that of a blessed person. God has not withheld anything from you. He's blessed you in Christ. Verse four goes on to say, you've been chosen. Now listen, there's something deeply profound about the, the, the early elementary years where you're in PE class and you're choosing teams for dodgeball and you're the last one chosen. Like, I know what that felt like. Uh, maybe you do. But there's also something really profound and, and validating about being chosen first. And what this passage tells us, that you, God predestined, he preplanned to choose you. So before the game was even being talked about, God chose you. He's like, yeah, I, that's mine. You didn't have to do anything. You, you didn't prove yourself. First, God, on his own volition, his own will, set out to, to bring you, to choose you, and bring you in so you would belong to him. He talks about making you holy and setting you apart. The, the whole purpose of this is, is to make you obtain the glory that you were meant to obtain. I would use a C.S. Lewis quote here. I don't have time. But then, so chosen. You, you've been lovingly pre-planned for adoption. So it's not that you're just on God's team and you're serving a function, but he has actually lovingly chose you to be part of his family. Like we talk about, I don't, you, some of the most compelling, powerful stories that, that just move me to tears every single time are stories of adoption. Of these kids that have gone through the rigmarole of the foster uh, Foster, what do I want? Foster thing, foster program. Yes, thank you. They've done that, and it's been hardship, and it's been struggle. There's been good houses, there's been bad houses. It's just sort of in, unstable. And then for them to get the news, I'm going to cry right now thinking about it. That they have a place. That there's somebody who said, "I've got you. You belong to me." That's what God says to us right now. You belong. God says, "I've got you. You're mine. I've set my love on you." See, that's another thing. It's hard for us to believe that we are actually loved by God. We can think he, God can tolerate me, but God actually loves you. Like, he can't help 
but move toward you. And that's true of you right now. You are loved. And then verse six says, you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. You have been redeemed. Now God, of course, is in the process of redeeming you, sanctifying you, making you more and more glorious in Christ. But he has already forgiven you. So you are no longer defined by all of your past failures and mistakes. You are forgiven. The slate is clean. Scripture tells us as far as the east is from the west. So has God removing your sin from you. You are redeemed. Now, verse seven says you've been graced lavishly. Now, grace means that you get what you don't deserve. We sang about this this morning. Mel, thank you for leading us so well and that even your prayer just smacked the nail on the head here. We've been graced lavishly. God is not stingy. None of this stuff. Like, it doesn't say, verse three doesn't say blessed with a couple spiritual blessings. Every spiritual blessing. God's like, he doesn't partially love you. He doesn't doesn't love you on your good days. He loves you always. In fact, his heart towards you is like a a fire hydrant that's just fully on blast. You can't stop it. You can't kink the hose. You've been graced lavishly. We've been enlightened. The mystery of God's plan of what he's going to do where heaven and earth come together. We've been brought in on the secret. We're not in the dark. We're not unaware. God has made known to us And of course, we talked about last week, sealed and assured by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit isn't just with us, but in us. The Spirit of God lives with those to comfort us, to assure us, to empower us, us, to let us know that we belong to God, and God wants to use us for his purposes of uniting heaven and earth together. Now, when you sort of blow up this view of salvation, and focusing on the minute detail here, you can see that salvation is so much more than people getting saved from hell. It's so much more than just getting out of the hot spot. That here in salvation, the deepest human longings that we have are met and satisfied by Jesus. That we belong, that we're loved, that that God wants to prosper us and, and bring about our flourishing, that we're forgiven and cleansed and kept. God is doing all of this stuff. And when we understand this, this is life giving, it's satisfying, it cultivates a, a, a sense of security, it validates us, it produces joy in us, and it makes us worshipers. See, All of this stuff is true of you right now. This is your reality if you are in Christ Jesus. And the new heavens and new earth, they're promised. The Spirit's a guarantee of it. And when we see this, when we understand, when we have this big view of salvation and the sun is coming up because glory of the Lord's coming down, when we see this, we can't help but to worship God. You can't help, it's like a reflex. In fact, three times through this passage, uh, uh, verses three through 14, Paul is saying to us, it's to the praise. God is doing this to the praise of his grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's all about, the whole point of this is so it would end up with worshipers. It's all about worship. Now, the reason why we worship God is because he does what we couldn't do in and of ourselves. Everything that Paul talks about in verses three through 14 is the work of the triune God. You do not bring anything to the table to help this happen. It's like, you don't even have like lint in your pocket to give back to God and say, hey, here's what I got to offer. God, like all of this, all of salvation is accomplished by God. It's his doing and it's freely given to us in Christ. You don't strive for it. You don't earn it. It's impossible to. It's a gift. Now, God is making this gift available to all people. It's being offered. It's up to you. Will you receive this gift? Will you trust? Will you move into a posture of worship? Because God does what we couldn't do. Now, this is the main difference between the gospel, like the true gospel, the true word of salvation, and religion, and any other secular ideologies. Religion says, here's what you do. Put in this, and you'll get this out. 
Secularism does the same thing. Live this way, if we can all just have this shared worldview, the same understanding, then we'll progress. Like, really, secularism is trying to get the kingdom of God without the king. It's like, if we just all come together, and that's what Babel, it doesn't work out, folks. We're still trying, it still doesn't work. But it's all about striving. It's all about our doing. But the gospel just says, listen, God did it all. Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. And when you see that, worship becomes the number one indicator that you not just understand but have embraced the gospel. Now, Paul is trying to reorient us to this true reality, the truest reality that that is in existence that will ever be. But as we sit on this side of eternity, there are all kinds of things that hinder and obscure us from having the whole salvation in view. It distracts us, it stands in the way, it blocks our vision. We get so easily distracted with busyness, like the grind of work and family life and this and that. We just keep going and going and going that we miss some of the the glorious truths that are available, the things that are most true about us in Christ. We miss out on those. It's not that they're not true. It's just we're not appreciating the gift. We can't see it. Or it's like my circumstances seem so real to me. Right, the conflict that I'm in in my marriage, the, the, the brokenness that I have in relationship, the frustration that I have with my job, that stuff seems so pressing, so real to me that I can't see past it to see the beautiful masterpiece of God's salvation. Or my feelings. I don't feel loved. Well, I, I appreciate feelings. Feelings are, are given to us by God to help us know him in like the realest way. But feelings can be liars. Like you say, I don't feel loved. Well, that didn't change God's love for you. He he still has set his love on you. And all of these things become more real to us than the gospel. And then what happens? Our worship wanes. Our worship starts being directed to stuff that's just insignificant in comparison to God. Now, this is why Sunday mornings... It's why it's so important to be here in the room on Sunday mornings to be with your missional community family throughout the week because this is the opportunity for us to get fresh sight of salvation. My son Kuiper, he wears glasses, and I swear, I don't know how he sees through them because they are the filthiest things on the face of the earth. I, I don't know. And so... A couple times a week, I've got to grab the cleaning cloth, wipe them off, put them back on. It's like he sees the world afresh. And that's what church does for us, people. That's what being with the saints does for us. It cleans off the lenses, and it lets us fix our gaze upon Jesus and let all of the worship that's coming out of our hearts flow to him. We can see him clearly. And when you see what Jesus has done, when you see what God has done, when you see what the Spirit is doing, You cannot help but stand in ovation. You cannot help but say, I mean, slow clap. We should be slow clapping every week. Our hands should be thrown up in the air. We should be running around here like crazy people, guys. Like that is how real, that's how potent the salvation is that just draws the best out of us. But it doesn't just happen here on Sunday mornings. It actually changes us, and and this is what we're gonna get into in in chapters four through six. It changes us to be all of life worshipers. So whether you're a parent, a spouse, a coworker, a boss, serving your mission community, living in community together, you're a worshiper and you're worshiping Jesus. See, this is what the book of Ephesians is about. It's solidifying our identity as worshipers and showing us what it looks like to live into that identity. So let me ask you right now, has the gospel become so real to you? Has it gotten so deep in your bones that all you can do is worship Jesus? That like for you, all of life, whether you eat or drink, be done to the glory of Christ. See, I think for us, that's gonna be the indicator. 
that this passage, this identity has become ours. Not that, not that it's not ours, but we've become aware of this reality, that we've lived into this reality, where we become all of life's worshipers. Now, only, I'm bringing it home here. You guys are doing great. Only a big view of salvation can make you into this kind of worshiper. That's why in Psalm 45, he says, I will meditate upon you and your works at all times. What's he doing? He, he's cultivating his worship for God by keeping the big thing, the main thing, the most glorious thing in front of his face. What would that look like for you? What does it look like for you to keep the glory of, of salvation in front of your face? Now, when we worship God, not only are we giving him his due, he's worthy of all worship, of all praise, but we actually benefit from, when, from it when we worship God. Worship of God invigorates us. It makes us come more fully alive because that's what we were made to do. We were made to worship. And we come more fully alive because the reality of the gospel seeps deeper and deeper into our bones. Church, I pray that we would see the splendor of God, his character, and his works, and that our tongues could not be stopped from proclaiming his glory. In Luke, I think it's Luke 14, says, if we're silent, the rocks will cry out. Church, let's not make the rocks sing. We can do that for them. Let's worship God and see this glorious gospel to the praise of his glorious grace. Father, we thank you that there is no one, nothing like you. No other religion, no other God, no other worldview offers what you offer. You bless us because, Jesus, you were cursed on the cross. God, you chose us to be holy and blameless, yet you set aside Jesus to be the propitiation for our sin. You adopted us into your family by forsaking and pushing Jesus out. You've loved us. You've graced us lavishly. You've redeemed us through the sacrifice of Christ's own blood. You've forgiven us. You've given us a new view of life and this world and what you're doing. God, we thank you that you've done all of this in the gospel to the praise of your glorious grace. Would you be magnified and be made much of? What a pleasure, what a joy it is for us, Father, to worship you. Help us to come more fully alive the more we fix our eyes on you and give you the praise that's due to you. We praise you. We love you. We, we want to trust you. And we want to make much of Jesus. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.